0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole, and like always, I am joined here by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. On this episode, Journey is going to be telling us all about John Wayne Gacy and his horrible, horrible crimes and the terrible person he was. And Rebecca will then be educating us on a little bit about psychopathy, tell us what it is, and um, we'll link it back to John Wayne Gacy. I would also like to note that for this episode, there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are some detailed descriptions of abuse, sexual assault, and rape. With that introduction underway, do we want to shift it up a bit? And Journey, would you like to tell us a
1: little bit about John Wayne Gacy? Yeah. um, I didn't really know much about him before this episode, and (laughs) now I'm kind of wishing I could go back to that. (laughs) Um, So I'm sorry, and you're welcome for the trauma you are about to receive. Um, So John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17th, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois, His parents were John Stanley Gacy and Marion Elaine Robinson. He had an older and a younger sister and no brothers. His father was an extremely abusive alcoholic, and he often physically abused him, his mom, and his sisters. And so as a result of this, John Wayne Gacy was very close with his mom and his sisters. And even though his father was a piece of shit, for lack of a better term... Um, young young John Wayne Gacy really wanted to make his father proud, but he was rarely successful in making his father proud. Um, apparently one of his earliest childhood memories was when his father beat him with a belt for messing up car engine parts that his father had put together. And he was only four at that time. And that leaves a Whoa. lasting impression. Whoa. yeah Okay. I watched so,
0: like, the documentary and I like don't remember the details, and so now <laughs> The they didn't go into
1: like, the, they didn't go into the details about like his childhood as okay. much as I thought they were going to. Yeah. Um, so learning about his childhood kind of made me understand yeah. how he turned out the way he did. Yeah. 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 And so then when he was six years old, he stole a toy truck from a store in the neighborhood. His mom made him walk back to the store, return the toy and apologize, which That's fair. Um, But his mom also told his father what happened, and he beat him with a belt again. And so Gacy's mother attempted to shield her son from her husband's abuse after this incident, but that led to his father calling him a sissy, a mama's boy, and saying that he would, quote, probably grow up queer, end quote. And his father also regularly belittled him and called him dumb and stupid in comparison to his sisters. And the documentary mentioned a very interesting thing of, like, how his dad would give his mom attention and, like, even though it was, like, sexual attention, um, Gacy was still, like, almost envious of it because he wasn't getting any positive attention from his father. And so he ended up, like, stealing his mom's underwear and um then she found out and she, to like, took, took it away but also said that if she caught him with it again, she would, like, or no, she... When she caught him with it, she made him wear it and said that if she caught him with it again, she would make him run down the street wearing it.
2: That is not a good way to respond to, to finding that your child did that. Right?
1: Yeah. So, between the two of them, it's resulted in a really messed up kid... Um, but even though his father was regularly cruel to him, uh, when Gacy was interviewed after his arrest, he denied that he hated him. He was like, no, I'm still like, love my father. I just wanted to make him proud. I'm just sad. I never got the chance to do that. Um, and so then when Gacy was nine, he was molested by a family friend who would take Gacy for a ride in his truck and then fondle him. He never told his father about this because he was afraid that his father would blame him for it, which I think is a very valid fear. Um, especially in his um, case. Um, Gacy also had a heart condition, so he wasn't able to participate in school sports, and he was often the victim of bullying as a result. He assisted the school truant officer and volunteered to run errands for the teachers and neighbors. And when he was in fourth grade, he started having seizures that resulted in him blacking out. And he was even hospitalized for some of the episodes. And then in 1957, his appendix burst. Um, And then also in 1957, a friend of Gacy's recounted a story where his father beat him with no provocation. And so out of nowhere, Gacy's dad started yelling at him for no reason and then started hitting him. His mother tried to stop the abuse, but she wasn't able to. And the friend recalled that Gacy, quote, put his hands up to defend himself, end quote, but never struck his father back. Which makes sense because in that situation, like if you hit back, it only gets worse. Which devastating but understandable and so between the ages of 14 to 18 it was calculated that he spent an entire year in the hospital as a result of all of the um like health issues he was experiencing and so unsurprisingly his grades suffered from missing so much school due to his health issues his father thought that the episodes were a way to gain sympathy and even accused him of faking an episode while he was in the hospital recovering from Ron. um and so even though he was in the hospital for a lot of time, his medical condition was never diagnosed. They never actually figured out what was going on with him, which I think is odd, but I also think that it's um like a condition that kind of stemmed from the abuse, like it was his way of coping with it. Could it have been um, something like
0: Munchausen's, I think it's called, or like something by Folia De Munchausen's a by proxy? Like
1: Maybe I think it was more of like a coping mechanism where, like, he was like his body couldn't process what was handled, like, what was happening to him. So, as a result, Mm -hmm. he had these seizures blacking out so that he wouldn't have to process what was going on. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That's my guesstimation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, those being those who were close to him never doubted that he had an illness. Um, And then when Gacy was 18, he became involved in politics and started working as an assistant precinct captain for a Democratic Party candidate in this neighborhood. And his father did not like this and called him a patsy. And then during later interviews, Gacy admitted to his decision to do this. Gacy admitted that his decision to do this may have come from a desire to gain acceptance from others that he wasn't able to get from his father. And then in 1978, he became the precinct captain for the whole neighborhood that he lived in. And he was very well-known around his suburbs. So he was able to like keep the dream of being well-known around people. And so in the same year um, that he was 18, I'm not sure which year that would have been. But his father bought him a car. And so this car was in his father's name until Gacy was able to pay him back, which took several years. And his father would also take away the keys if he did something that his father didn't like. And so two years later, in 1962, Gacy bought an extra set of keys and used those to drive the car when the original set was confiscated. His father then took off the distributor cap and didn't give it back for three days once he found the, like, uh, the copycat set of keys. And then once his father returned the distributor cap, uh, Gacy drove to Las Vegas, Nevada, and found work in the ambulance service. He worked with them for a bit and then changed to work as a mortuary attendant, where he worked three months before going back to Chicago. And so during his time as a mortuary attendant, he slept in a cot behind the embalming room. He later confessed that one evening he climbed into the coffin of a deceased teenage boy where he embraced and caressed his body. This shocked him and prompted him to call his mom and ask to come home, and his father said he could, so that he did. Um, when he returned home, he enrolled at Northwestern Business College despite not graduating high school. And he graduated college in 1963 and got a management trainee position working in the Nunn Bush Shoe Company. And then in 1964, he was transferred to Springfield, Illinois to work as a salesman, but was quickly promoted to manager of his department. And then in March of that same year, he got engaged to Marlon Myers, who was his co-worker, and they got married in September 1964. Uh, they had only started dating in January of that year. So they got engaged three months after starting dating and married, I think that's nine months later. Um, so very quick turnaround. And also in 1964, Gacy started working with the organization of the Jaycees. So the JCS is a United States junior chamber which is a leadership training service organization and civic organization for people between the ages of 18 to 40, according to Wikipedia. Um, the documentary describes it as a way for young men to get involved with the community. It seems weird, but a lot of famous people have been part of the JCS. And so by April, 1964, he was named key man. I don't know what that means. Um, and that same year he had his second homosexual experience um, his first being when he was molested by a family friend. Um, a colleague of his from the Jaycees took him out for drinks then asked him to spend the night on his sofa and then performed oral sex on him while he was drunk. So not a consen- consensual sexual experience. In 1965, Gacy was the vice president of the Springfield JCS and was named the third most outstanding Jaycee in the state of Illinois. Um, and then in 1966... Uh, Gacy's father-in-law bought three KFC restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa, and offered him $15,000 a year, plus a share of the profits he accepted and moved, uh, out to Waterloo in the autumn. And Gacy said that he thinks about his father, father-in-law the same way as his dad in that he can never please him. And so he was always working to try and please him. So I think that's why he took this job and, um, The $15,000 a year worked out to be um, $142,494.91 in today's currency, which that's one hell of a salary, (laughs) so I can also understand um, why he took it for that reason. Um, Gacy uh, changed to the Waterloo J.C.'s charter and quickly rose through the ranks again and was given the name Colonel by his colleagues because he would often give them free chicken. Um, he became chaplain of the JCS and then wanted to be president, and that kind of started a little bit of drama in the Jaycees. Um, but then in March 1967, Marlon gave birth to their son, Michael, and then in October 1968, she gave birth to their daughter, Christine. Um, Gacy described this time of his life as perfect because his achievements earned him approval from his father, uh, because in 1967, his father told him, quote, son, I was wrong about you, end quote. So he's kind of like, all is well. I'm doing everything perfectly. Um, However, not all was as it seems. Uh, The JC's life had a dark side that involved wife swapping, prostitution, pornography, and drugs. And so... (laughs) I almost got you to spit out your drink, Nicole. (laughs) Plot twist.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I'm not sure um how many of the jc's are involved in this dark side but i would imagine quite a few um jc was involved in
0: yeah he was involved in. he was almost everywhere on that one
1: (laughs) (laughs) i know i saw you like try not to spit it out (laughs) out
0: of the corner of my eye holy shit Anyways, yeah. carry on. This mm-hmm. is a ride of a lifetime over here, not knowing all these details. <laughs> right? And so it is just getting started. <laughs> Holy shit.
1: Yeah. So um, Gacy was involved in most, if not all, of these activities and was regularly cheating on his wife. Um, Apparently, he also had like a little club in his basement where he would invite fellow JCs to drink and play pool, which comes into play later on. Um, So being the manager of three KFCs, and for those of you who don't know, it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's a fast food restaurant. Um, Very yummy. Um, And so he was in charge of hiring, and he only hired teenagers um, of both sexes, but would only socialize with the boys. And so Gacy would give them alcohol before making sexual advances on them, which he would say was a joke if they weren't receptive. Kind of just like laugh it off. That's so
2: gross.
1: Yeah, so gross. And then in August 1967, Gacy committed his first sexual assault on a teenage boy. Gacy picked up 15-year-old Donald Voorhees, who was hitchhiking, and Gacy said that he um, was asking about stag films, um, which is just, like, porn. Um, But Gacy might have also offered to show him one, because that's what he did with an earlier boy who he ended up, like, not assaulting. Um, so it's, and it's tough because in the documentary, like, you kind of have to take everything that he says with a grain of salt because he is, um, like a compulsive liar and you, like, he will twist the truth so he doesn't look so bad. Um, so yeah, some of this, you just gotta take with a grain of salt. Um, so Gacy took him to his house, gave Voorhees alcohol and persuaded him to perform oral sex on him. And Gacy said, quote, he believes he went down on him as well, end quote. So... Gacy abused several other kids over the next few months in very similar ways. And one kid, he even he apparently encouraged to sleep with his wife before blackmailing him to perform oral sex on him. And then um, this part's really gross. But several teenagers were tricked into believing that Gacy was commissioned to carry out homosexual experiments for scientific research. Um, and so he would, like, often pay the kids $50 for them performing, like, sexual things on him. That's not nice. <laughs> yeah, no. it's really not. Um, and so then in March of 1968, uh, Donald Voorhees came forward and told his father that Gacy had sexually assaulted him. He told the police, and Gacy had arrest- was arrested and charged with oral sodomy to Voorhees and the attempted assault of 16 year old Edward Lynch. Uh, Gacy denied these allegations or accusations and took a polygraph test, which indicated that he was lying when he denied the charges against him. But we don't like polygraphs, so whatever. Um, I also thought that sodomy was only for anal sex, but it is the crime of oral or anal sexual contact or penetration between persons or of sexual intercourse between a person and an animal. Oh. Yeah. Gross. Um, I also don't understand why he wasn't charged with sexual assault instead of, like, specifically sodomy, but... Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. Um, Gacy publicly denied the charges and said they were politically motivated because Donald Voorhees' father opposed Gacy's nomination as president of the Iowa's Jaycees. And so because of that, several Jaycees found Gacy's story credible and supported him in saying that he hadn't sexually assaulted um, young Donald Voorhees. Um, that being said, on May 10th, 1968, he was indicted on the sodomy charge. In August 1968, Gacy persuaded 18-year-old Russell Russell Schroeder to attack Donald Voorhees in an effort to discourage him from testifying at the upcoming trial. So Schroeder agreed to lure Voorhees to a secluded spot, spray mace in his face, and beat him up, and he was paid $300 for doing that. Um, Voorhees, being so smart, he immediately reported this assault to the police and identified Schroeder as, a, as his assailant because they worked together which was kind of stupid on Gacy's part. Um, Schroeder was arrested and told police that Gacy paid him to do it. Um, Gacy was then arrested and charged for hiring him to assault and intimidate Voorhees. And then on September 3rd, he was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at the psychiatric hospital of the state of state university of Iowa. And two doctors examined him for over a period of 17 days. And they came to the conclusion that he had antisocial personality disorder, uh, which Rebecca will be telling us a little bit more about in the second half of our episode, and the doctors also said that he was unlikely to benefit from medical treatment. He will repeatedly be in contact conflict with society, and he is mentally competent to stand trial. And so Gacy tried to flip the switch and say that he was the victim in this situation, that he was used, and that it like wasn't his fault because he had this disorder kind of thing, which is disgusting. Uh, but then on November 7th, 1968, he pled guilty to the charge of sodomy against Donald Voorhees, but not guilty to the other charges against him. And so he the reason he pled guilty um, was because he thought he would only get probation if he changed his plea, because originally he had pled not guilty to the charge of sodomy. And so Gacy said that he and Voorhees did engage in sexual activities, but that Voorhees offered sexual services to him and that Gacy only accepted out of curiosity. Uh, No one believed that story, which is good. And Gacy was convicted of sodomy on December 3rd, 1968, and was sentenced to 10 years at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. The same day he was sentenced, his wife filed for divorce and requested their home, property, and subsequent alimony payments. The courts ruled in her favor and their divorce was finalized in September 1969 and Gacy never saw his first wife or his children ever again. And when you google those children, nothing comes up because they don't know really that Gacy was their father and they want nothing to do with the limelight. They still will not talk to any of Gacy's family. Like they have like she did a really good job of protecting wow. them from him. Yeah.
2: Wow. That's very understandable honestly, especially knowing what came after that. So
1: Good on the mom for
2: protecting them.
1: Yeah, she did a phenomenal job. Um, and so when Gacy was in prison, he was a model prisoner, joined the J.C.'s chapter in there, became head cook, supervised projects to improve conditions for the inmates, and installed a mini golf course in their rec yard. Um, he was very excited about that. In June 1969, he applied for early release but was denied. He got his high school diploma in November of 1969, Um, His father passed away on Christmas Day, but he wasn't told until two days later, uh, which he was very upset about. Um, He asked for compassionate leave to attend his uh, his dad's funeral, but was denied. And this really impacted his personality because he felt like he had let his dad down when he died because he never amounted to anything or made him proud. And now he couldn't try to make him proud anymore. It was kind of just their relationship was stuck at where it was when he passed away. On June 18th, 1970, he was granted 12 months probation, even though he was only 18 months into his 10-year sentence. Um, there were two conditions to his parole, which were that he got to live with his mother and he had a curfew of 10 p.m. So Gacy moved back to Chicago on June 19th and got a job as a short order cook in a restaurant.
0: They really screwed over the mom on that deal. Right? <laughs> like You have to go <laughs> yes. live with your mom. Did, mm-hmm. did the mom have any say
1: in this what well, is she was like i don't want my child here i'm thinking she was okay with that like i'm thinking she was wild. the kind of mom who was like my son can do no wrong like oh wild yeah okay um, but i don't really know
0: <laughs> okay Hmm.
1: so then on february 12 1971 gacy was charged with sexually assaulting another teenage boy uh, this kid said that Gacy had lured him into his car at a Greyhound terminal and drove him to his house where he tried to force the kid into sex. These charges were dismissed because the kid failed to appear in court. Uh, somehow, the parole board didn't hear of this incident. So, eight months later, his parole ended and the records of his previous crimes were sealed and he was a free man in society. Isn't that what? disgusting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah.
0: I feel like no information was processed in my brain when I watched this documentary on him. (laughs) Yeah. I thought I knew what he, like, what he had done and the things, the atrocities he's committed, but, like, it's all, it all makes sense now.
1: Yeah. They only cover what happened, like, once he started killing, really. Like, they spend a little bit of time with Donald Voorhees and another guy. I can't remember his name. I think his name was Steve Nemers. Okay. Um. But like and they talk briefly about this, but they don't highlight it in the fact that like he all of these crimes could have been committed. Wow. Yeah. Had Illinois and Iowa court systems talked to each other or had they like yeah. looked into his past at all?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. So that's it's really upsetting because it could have all been avoided. Um Okay. So, Gacy bought a house in Cook County in August 1971, which he and his mother moved into, and the address was um, 8213 Somerdale. And in October, he started dating Carol Hoff, who was a young divorcee with two daughters. They had previously dated in high school, I guess, and she was a friend of one of his younger or his younger sister. And so, she moved into their, into his house shortly after their engagement in November, and his mom moved out right before their wedding. So that would have been a weird couple months. Um, allegedly, he had a conversation with her about how he was bisexual and quote, engaged in different things, end quote. But he wasn't gay because um uh when he was ever asked if he had a homosexual relationship, he said no, because yeah. he'd only had oral or anal sex and there was quote, no feelings there, there was no love, end quote. So it didn't count as homosexual because he wasn't in love with the boys he was having sex with. And yeah. that's why he thought he was bisexual. Definitely not gay. Yeah, definitely not gay. <laughs> he he hated, like, he has this, like, deep-rooted hatred for gay people. And so the way he would talk about them, like, in the documentary, like, was really? disgusting.
2: Mm-hmm. That's so messed up.
1: Yeah, I think it was one of those things where, like, he knew he was gay when he was younger and then his dad was always, like that's the worst possible thing you could be oh, so then he also yeah. like took on that hatred of like yeah i yeah which is upsetting but um yeah so he told his wife all that um she knew he had been incarcerated i don't know if she knew why um or if he left out that like the boy was under age or what um but he said that he wanted to start their marriage off honestly so that's why he told her Um, So then on January 2nd, 1972, Gacy picked up Timothy Jack McCoy, who was 15, from the Greyhound bus terminal and took him on a sightseeing tour of Chicago. Um, He drove him back to his house and said McCoy could spend the night and he would drive him back to the terminal in the morning for his bus. Um, Allegedly, they performed oral sex on each other. Gacy said that he woke up in the morning with McCoy standing in his door with a knife in his hand. Uh, Gacy jumped out of bed and McCoy raised both arms in surrender. And by doing so, um, the way he moved the knife accidentally cut Gacy's forearm. But Gacy has the scar to show that that's what happened. Um, So Gacy twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him against his wardrobe and walked towards him. And then McCoy kicked him in the stomach and Gacy grabbed the young boy, wrestled him to the floor, stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him with his body and then Gacy buried him in his crawl space. My guess about the scar is that the kid didn't
2: stab him or cut him accidentally because he was like, oh, I surrender. It was yeah. probably from
1: fighting back from that attack. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking. That sounds more <laughs> plausible. Yeah. And so we learned that McCoy hadn't intended any harm to Gacy. Um, he had just made breakfast for them and forgot to put the knife down before he woke Gacy up. Um and then during an interview in the 1980s, Gacy said that he felt drained after killing him, but also it had, had an orgasm. And he added, quote, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill, end quote. Um, so that kind of started his rampage. It just feels um, gross. Right? That's,
0: it's, that's all. Yeah.
1: I just don't have anything to say because it just feels Gross. Yeah, I sat down and researched this all in one sitting. And by the end of it, I was like, I need to just have a shower. Like, I feel disgusting. And then I watched the documentary and I was like, now I need to have a bleach bath. Like, I feel so (laughs) gross. Okay, so on... June 22nd, 1972, a week before his wedding, he was arrested and charged with battery after a young man told police that Gacy flashed a sheriff's badge at him, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex on him. These charges were dropped after the complainant tried to blackmail Gacy into paying money in exchange for dropping the charges. And then um, July 1st, 1972, Carol and John Wayne Gacy got married. Uh later in 1972, he started his own construction business called PDM Contractors, where PDM stood for painting, decorating, and maintenance. And he hired almost exclusively young boys. I think it's important to mention that he's around 25 when all of this happens. Um because I thought he was way older. I didn't realize I so that- too. Yeah. I always thought I'm he was picturing in the 40s. like the 40s. Yeah. 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 I'm going to double check my math on that, but I'm fairly certain he was 25 when it happened. Oh, 30. He was about 30 now. So he was 25 when he first went to jail. Okay. But still, that's like at least 10 years younger than I expected. Right? Yeah. So he would have been like 38 when he was like finally put in prison. So yeah, in 1973, Gacy and one of his employees went to Florida to see a property that he had purchased. During the first night, Gacy raped the young boy. And when they came back to Chicago, this boy drove to Gacy's house where Gacy was working in the yard and um, started to beat him up. Gacy's mother-in-law stopped the kid and he drove away. Gacy told her and his wife that the attack happened because he refused to pay the young boy for the poor quality work that he had performed. Not what had actually happened. Um, The second time that Gacy killed wasn't until January 1974, so two years later. His victim was an unidentified uh, teen boy with medium brown curly hair and was between the ages of 15 to 17. Uh, Gacy strangled him before putting his body in a closet. Gacy said that fluid leaked out of the boy's mouth and nose and stained the carpet in the closet. And so as a result, he started stuffing rags or their underwear in their mouths to prevent staining or any fluid leakage. Um, He buried this young boy in the barbecue pit in his backyard. And this pit was dug out by Tony Antonucci, who worked for him. And so he started the pit and then came back a little while later. I'm not sure how much later. I'm assuming it was like a day or so. Um, But the bottom was already filled with concrete, which he thought was very odd, but didn't think that there would be a body under there. And so... Um, Gacy was known as a gregarious, helpful person who was active in his community and hosted annual summer parties. He was also an important part of the Democratic Party and various Polish, wow, that's hard to say, and various Polish associations. Um, he also got to meet Rosalind Carter and had a Secret Service clearance pin on his suit in the photos that were taken with her, which made, um, the US government really mad when it came to light what he had been doing to young boys because he had that pin that wasn't given to just anybody. Um, And then he joined the Jolly Jokers clown club in late 1975 and created his character of Pogo the Clown. Um, One thing we should note about his clown appearance was that he painted sharp corners on his clown makeup instead of the like rounded borders that professional clowns use not to scare children, which makes him all the more creepy as a clown. And so, this clown club that he was a part of would perform at fundraising events and parades and entertain a hospitalized, uh, and entertain for hospitalized children. I wrote that really weirdly. Um, and he was quoted saying, But if I was in a bad mood, then it was bad for me to be a clown because some of those kids can be little bastards, you know, you want to whack the shit out of them. End quote. Whoa. So. <laughs> Yeah, not great. Um, oh, no. yeah, kind of a despicable thing for a clown to say when he's like entertaining, at, like children. Your job
0: and- is to be around children, right? <laughs> wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, um, but he really enjoyed being a clown because he can do things as a clown that you can't do as a person. And he even said to the investigators, "Quote, clowns can get away with anything. Clowns can get away with murder." end quote this feels like a novel like i know this was real and this actually
0: happened but it seems so absurd that it's fictional
1: yeah and something that i had thought about like i thought he killed as a clown i didn't realize that he wasn't as a clown when he killed yeah i guess that we know that he's admitted but i feel like he would have admitted to that yeah because like that's just the persona
0: that's portrayed through media. This reminds me so much. This brings me back to that research. Remember with the two professors? Um, Sorry, side tangent. Um, mm-hmm. They were looking into the portrayal of serial killers in media and, like, yeah. tracking that. This is exactly that. Like, we see John Wayne Gacy as just a clown and killed as a clown. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, the actual shit that happened that, like, you need to know to
1: understand to be disgusted in this man. Like, like And that's why... I go, I go into so, so much depth about, like, who he was just as yeah. a regular neighborhood man because he was, like, revered in the neighborhood. and No mm-hmm. one thought he was capable of this. Everyone loved him. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Continue. I'm fascinated. <laughs> I feel <laughs> yeah. like I'm learning all over again. I
1: love it. Right? It was so interesting because it was so, so different to the portrayal that I had already had of him
0: like i already hated this man because i like i knew generally what he had done to some degree mm-hmm. but like this just adds a whole other aspect to it yeah like i am this yeah. i'm viscerally unwell and that doesn't happen often i will say
1: <laughs> yeah it's just and i'm so sorry because it is going to get so much worse okay um, yeah he's just all sorts of messed up um But then in 1975, um, after having sex with his wife on Mother's Day, he told her that they would never again have sex. He then spent most of his evenings away from home, only returning early in the morning. And he told his wife that he was working late. Um, His wife saw him bringing teenage boys into their garage and found gay porn in their house. She also started to question him about why he was hiring only young boys, to which he said in an interview, quote, I am accused of it so goddamn much. I might as well go out and do it, which I did, end quote. And so I think he wanted to kill and um, sexually assault young boys before being accused of it. And then I think that was his way of like justifying it in air quotations of why he did it because I don't, that that, there's no way that was his like motivation because he'd been doing it for so long. Yeah. Um, so then in July, 1975, Gacy went to his employee, Anthony Antonucci, who had built the barbecue pit earlier. Um, so he went to his house while he was home alone to check in on him because he had stepped on a nail at work the day before and hurt his foot. Um, so they started wrestling because Gacy knew he was on the wrestling team at school. So weird. So weird. But also when Bryce was living in the crew house with his boss, who's about the same age as like older than him as Gacy would have been from this guy. Like they wrestled all the time, but it wasn't weird like this, you know? And so, yeah. Um, I'm not trying to excuse what he did. I'm just trying to say that it might not have been as weird as it was at the time, but knowing what we know about him makes it exponentially weirder. Understandable. Um, Yes. So uh, they were wrestling, and then Gacy wrestled him to the ground, cuffed his hands behind his back. Uh, Thankfully, one of the cuffs was loose, so Anthony was able to get his hand free and wrestled the key out of Gacy's hand and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. Um, Gacy told him, quote, you're the only one that not only got out of the handcuffs, but got them on me, end quote. And so they interview um Anthony in the Netflix documentary and like hearing him talk about that is so uncomfortable because he's like, that's something that's always stayed with me. And I'm like, yeah, as it would. Um Wow. Yeah, so once Gacy calmed down a little bit after being handcuffed, he got really mad. Um, Anthony uncuffed him and Gacy left. And then one or two weeks after this attack, depending on the source, on July 31st, 1975, 17-year-old John Bukovich disappeared. And so the day before he disappeared, Bukovich threatened Gacy for over two weeks of back pay that he hadn't yet received. And then Gacy... um, lured him to his house while his wife and stepchildren were under, were away um, under the guise of settling the issue with the wages. And so Gacy somehow tricked the boy to cuff his hands behind his back. He strangled him to death and then buried his body under the concrete floor of his garage. Um, Gacy also admitted to sitting on his chest for a while before killing him. Gacy drove uh Butkovich's car to an abandoned parking lot to make it look like he had run away um, but the people who knew Bukovic thought that that was super weird because his car had meant so much to him that he wouldn't, like if he was running away, he would have taken his car too. Um, Gacy was questioned about Bukovic's disappearance and said that he and two friends had come to his apartment to demand his missing wages, but eventually left after they had reached a compromise. And then over the next three years, Bukovic's parents called the police over a hundred times to investigate Gacy Moore. In October 1975, um, Gacy and his wife got into an argument over her not properly balancing a PDM checkbook, and she asked for a divorce. In March of 1976, their divorce was finalized, and Carol and her daughters moved out in um, February the month before. So by April, or in April 1976, Gacy abducted and murdered 18-year-old Daryl Sampson, On May 14th, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared while walking home from school. He was gagged with a cloth, which caused him to die via asphyxiation. And then not long after Randall was abducted, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton disappeared as he was walking home from his sister's apartment. Both of these boys were buried in the same grave in the crawlspace, as well as 18-year-old Daryl Sampson. On June 3rd, 1976, Gacy strangled 17-year-old Michael Bonin with a ligature and buried him in the crawl space. On June 13th, 16-year-old William Carroll was killed and buried under his kitchen. There were three other boys killed and buried under Gacy's kitchen. Between June 13th and August 6th, they ranged from 16 to 30 years old. Um, on July 26, 1976, Gacy hired 18-year-old David Cram. On August 21st, Cram moved in with Gacy, and the following day, he tricked Cram into putting on handcuffs while he was drunk. Gacy swung him around and told him he was going to rape him. Cram said, or Cram had been in the army for a year, so he kicked Gacy in the face and got out of the handcuffs. But the trick that Gacy used to handcuff this boy was he was like, I'm gonna show you a magic trick where, like, I can put myself in cuffs behind my back and then get out of them. But he wouldn't, like, he would have the key in his hand, so he would just, like, undo them. And then he would give the handcuffs to the boy and be like, now it's your turn. Like, you try and get out of them. But then they wouldn't be able to because they weren't trick handcuffs. Uh, One month later, Gacy appeared in Cram's bedroom and told him he was going to rape him. He said to him, quote, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you gave me what I want, end quote. Um, Cram resisted his attempts and moved out and quit his job at PDM Contractor's. Which is a month too late, in my opinion. Agreed. Um, yeah. But at least he I, got out. Exactly. Uh, wow. Yeah. I maybe would have moved out after the first incident, but that's just me.
2: <laughs> just a um, slight side note how
1: is he burying all these people
2: under his already built house? There's you like, know-
1: a, yeah, um, there's like a crawl space in between. So the house is lifted up on above the foundation so instead of like having a basement it was just dirt
2: i oh. always thought when they said crawl space because i I knew that about john wing gacy's where he buried the victims mm-hmm. i thought it was only under like his front porch i had no idea this went under his entire house but that makes so much more sense
1: yeah i didn't realize it went under his entire house i thought it was only like a piece of it because my uncle has a crawl space in his house that just is under a piece of it Um, But his is under the whole house, according to the layout that they show in the Netflix documentary of where they found each of the bodies. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, Gacy killed two more boys between August and October 1976. One was buried above the body of William Carroll. And then on October 24th, 1976, Gacy abducted and killed Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. They were strangled and buried in the crawlspace. On October 26th, 19-year-old William Bundy appeared and was strangled and buried in the crawlspace directly below Gacy's master bedroom. In December 1976, another PDM employee, Gregory Godzik, who was 17 at the time, disappeared. Gacy told his family that Godzik had run away and told him prior that that was his plan. So he kind of was like, oh, yeah, he confided in me that he was going to run away. That's why he's missing. Um, and they were like, yeah, that's fact. So, on January 20th, 1977, John Zick, who was friends with Bukovic Godzick um, and worked for Gacy, he disappeared. Um, he was buried directly above Godzik, and Gacy kept the ring worn by Zick in his dresser and sold his car to Mike Rossi, who also worked for Gacy, and... Between December 1976 and March 1977, Gacy killed an unidentified man who was around 25 years old. He was buried beneath the body of 20-year-old John Prestige, who was killed on March 15th. Um, After killing Prestige, Gacy killed another unidentified man who was buried parallel to the wall of Gacy's crawlspace underneath the entrance to his house. And then in April 1977, Gacy became engaged to another woman who he had been dating for the past three months, And she moved into his house, um, but they called off the engagement in June that same year by mutual agreement, probably because he was creepy. In July, Gacy killed 19-year-old Matthew Bowman, who he buried in the crawlspace with the tourniquet still around his neck. In August 1977, John Zick's car was traced to Gacy's house because the kid who who he had sold it to after killing Zick was living and working with him. Um, so Gacy told police officers that Zick had sold it to him in February, with the explanation that he needed to leave town, and the police didn't pursue it any further. Um, during the autumn and winter of 1977, Gacy started dating Carol Hoff again, but by the next year she was engaged to a different man, so it also went nowhere. And by the end of 1977, Gacy killed six more young men between the ages of 18, 21. And they are 18-year-old Robert Gilmore, 19-year-old John Mowry, 21-year-old Russell Nelson, 16-year-old Robert Winch, 20-year-old Tommy Bowling, and 19-year-old David Talsma. On December 30th, 1977, Gacy abducted 19-year-old Robert Donnelly from a bus stop at gunpoint. Gacy drove him home, raped him, tortured him, and repeatedly dunked his head in the bathtub until he passed out and then revived him. Donnelly survived this encounter and later testified that he was in so much pain that he had actually asked Gacy to kill him to quote, get, get it over with end quote. And Gacy replied with, I'm getting around to it. Uh, Donnelly reported this assault and Gacy was questioned about it on January 6, 1978. Gacy admitted they were having slave sex together, um, but said everything was consensual. The police believed him and no charges were filed. Um, that means there is like no way that the police were not corrupt
2: there are so many people from his company going missing and there are so many both rape convictions and accusations about him and then every time he says oh they ran away oh i was his confidant or confidant
1: oh it was consensual it was a little kinky why are the police okay with that right i think it's because he was such a like important man in the neighborhood Like, he was in such high standing in this J.C.'s corporation of whatever, and so they never expected that he would actually be this terrible. Either way, they need to kind of, yeah. Not ideal. So then in February 1978, Gacy killed William Kindred, who was the last of his victims to be buried in his crawlspace. In March 1978, Gacy lured 26-year-old Jeffrey Rignall into his car. Rignall was chloroformed, taken to Gacy's house, raped, tortured, and repeatedly chloroformed into unconsciousness. Rignall survived with permanent liver damage and, like, burns on his face. I don't know if they were permanent, but the photo of him after was really upsetting. Um, he did inform the police, but they didn't investigate Gacy because Rignall was a gay man and they didn't believe that rape could happen between men. Um, at least that was the theory. Uh, Rignall remembered what car Gacy drove, so he followed him around and back to his house. Police then issued an arrest warrant, and Gacy was arrested on July 15th. He was facing an impending trial for a battery charge against Rignall when he was arrested for the murders in December. Um, Gacy later confessed that he had thrown five bodies off the I-55 bridge into the Desplaines River in 1978, uh, one of which he thought landed on a passing barge and only four of the five were ever found. Three of the four are 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke, who was killed mid-June and found June 30th, 19-year-old Frank uh, Ladigan, who was found November 12th, 20-year-old James Mazzara, who disappeared November 24th and was found December 28th, and then the fourth one um, is Robert Peast. And so on December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited a pharmacy to discuss a remodeling deal with the owner of the store. And while discussing this deal, a fifteen-year-old employee named Robert Jerome Peace overheard him saying that he hires teenage boys. Peace told his mom that some contractor wants to talk to him about a job, and he left the store to see Gacy. And when he didn't return, his family filed a missing persons report. And the owner of the pharmacy said it was most likely Gacy who he was meeting with. Um, the Desplaines police were convinced that Gacy was behind Peace's disappearance, and they did the smart thing and checked his record. Finally. They finally decided wow. to look into this man. They saw that he had an outstanding battery charge in Chicago and had served a prison sentence for sodomy. The
0: rap sheet that would be, though... Sorry to interrupt.
1: The rap That's sheet okay. that would be if the
0: police actually did their jobs leading up to this, though. Right? Like, it wouldn't be those two
1: charges that, what, he got
0: away with or something like
1: Yeah, he served 18 months for? Oh, my God. Exactly. And, like... They mentioned in the documentary that, like, his rap sheet was mostly, like, assault and battery, and none of it was, like, yeah. inherently sexual. Yeah. Which, like, is, in like, mind-boggling, because yeah. almost every single boy was, like, he, like, sexually assaulted me. Yeah. And they were, like, we'll just change that to assault and battery. So they didn't Ugh. think it was – they just thought he was, like, getting into bar fights kind of thing.
0: I am unwell, but carry on. <laughs>
1: Yes, we are getting close to the end. Um, Gacy denied this when the police called. Um, They either called or went to his house. I don't know. Um, The source that I read and the documentary said different things. Um, He said he was unable to come to the station now because his uncle had just died but promised to come there later. I think he had just killed. um, Peace. So... He was, like, he said something weird about them being, like, cruel in the time of death or whatever. So I think there was a death. It was just not his uncle. And then at 3.30 a.m., he showed up covered in mud and claimed to be in a car accident. Um, turns out he, like, slid into the ditch when he was dumping Peace Body in the river, um, which we find out in episode three of the Netflix documentary. Um, but no one was there to talk to him because it was 3.30 in the morning. So he went back to his house and then came back around 11 a.m. the next morning. Um, they told him that he could either give them his keys to his house or they would bust the door down because they have a search warrant for his house. And in the Netflix documentary, you actually get to see the inside of his house. And he has clown paraphernalia everywhere. And it is so creepy. Um, He still denied any involvement but gave them a written statement of his movements on December 11th. On December 13th, they searched his house and found John Zick's class ring, various driver's licenses, handcuffs, books on homosexuality and pederasty, like pedophilia, um, a syringe, clothing that didn't belong to him, a 6 millimeter Brevetta starter pistol, and a photo receipt from the pharmacy that Peace worked for in the garbage and was later found out belonged to Peace. Uh, Sex toys and torture toys, as one of the investigators called them. Um... And so they ended up having to let him go because they hadn't actually found anything that would allow them to charge him because at that time they didn't realize that the photo receipt tied piece to the house. Um, but he had his ring. He had a the different other kid's evidence. ring. Oh, and so many fuck, driver's it had licenses. Because
0: it, it just had to be for him. It didn't, yeah. Like, no f-
1: Oh. No way. Yeah. Which no. is, <laughs> yeah, super upsetting. But now they have all of this evidence. Um, and so the next day, the investigators received a phone call from Michael Rossi, who bought Zick's car. And so he told him about Gregory Godzick's disappearance and that um, Charles Hat- Hatula uh, was found drowned in an Illinois river last year and had worked for PDM. So he was kind of like, hey, these are all of my friends who've gone missing that have worked for Gacy. <laughs> um And then on December 15th, they learned about Jeffrey Rignall's assault. Uh, They learned about the disappearance of John Zick from Gacy's ex-wife. I don't know. I forgot about that little tidbit. Um, I don't know how she knew about his disappearance. Um, And then John Zick's ring just had his initials J-A-S, so it didn't actually have his name on it. So then once they found out that John Zick had disappeared, they were like, oh, his initials are J-A-S, and this is a ring from the high school that he went to that also has the initials J-A-S on it. Um, By December 16th, Gacy was becoming friends with the detectives who were tasked with watching him. So he was like, even though they let him go, he was constantly being tailed by officers. Um, And so they would go out for food and drinks at restaurants and at his home. Like if Gacy was out eating, he would just like invite them over. Um, And knowing that the officers weren't going to arrest him for something trivial, he broke many traffic laws and was, quote, driving like a maniac. End quote. Just to kind of like... Toy with them a little bit. And then on December 17th, they interviewed Michael Rossi. And as they started talking to more people, they learned that there were four or five other boys who were missing and had worked for Gacy. Uh, During the early hours of December 18th, Gacy invited the surveillance detectives to breakfast at a restaurant. At one point, Gacy said, um, he said his quote about clowns can get away with murder during that breakfast. And then later that day, he was showing visible signs of stress of uh, being followed by the police officers, which was kind of like their plan. They were kind of like pushing him to do something so they could catch him in the act. Um, Rossi was interviewed again that day, and he told detectives that in the summer of 1977, Gacy had him spread Ted. Well, Gacy had him spread ten bags of lime in the crawl space of his house. Super weird. Why would you need ten bags of that? Um, On December 19th, police were compiling evidence for a second search warrant of his home. Uh, That afternoon, Gacy invited his surveillance officers into his house. Very dumb on his part. Because that's where they saw the TV suspected to belong to John Zick as well. And a smell that could be rotting corpses once the heat kicked on. Because the first time they were in his house, the heat wasn't on. No. Um, (laughs) Gross.
0: Um, oh my god one stupid like you said you're an idiot for bringing them in but maybe like he was just so unaware of the fact that it smelled like death every time he turned on i was 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 gonna say like did he not notice
2: the smell of rotting bodies under his house like i'm did he just
1: live with that because i've heard it's the worst smell ever yeah (laughs) Yeah, he must have just gone nose blind to it right like or he liked it oh Oh, I don't want to think about that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh,
2: no, You've had to think about it just for the, all this research, so you can subject it to us a little.
1: <laughs> I have had some weird dreams lately, I will tell you that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, they brought David Cram back in for an interview to ask if he had ever seen John lose his temper because they knew that Cram had worked and lived with him. Um, So, Cram told officers that he had spread lime in the crawlspace and been asked to dig trenches that were two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep in the basement or in the crawlspace. And he changed directions and Gacy lost his mind. He was supposed to dig, like, only in this spot. But then he was like, oh, why don't I dig here? And Gacy was like, don't do that because he could have dug up bodies. Um, David Cram also told police officers about the attempted rape in 1976. Um, And then on December 20th, Gacy showed up at his lawyer's office, disheveled, and his lawyers – uh, n- they never really thought he was innocent, which is – was interesting to hear from, like, a defense lawyer's perspective because I'd never heard them actually say, like, oh, by this point we were, like, fully convinced he had done it, so we were just trying to, like, get him the least sentence that he could get kind of
0: thing. Do you think this was an after-the-fact thing and they are like, ah, shit, we can't let anyone know that we, like – thought he was innocent. Or like he didn't um,
1: do it. I'd be curious. Until this point, maybe. Okay. But after this meeting, definitely not. Okay. Um because they kind of confronted him with a newspaper with Peace Face on it and like Gacy got really uncomfortable and asked for a drink. Um, So he sat down, picked up the newspaper talking about Robert Pease's disappearance and said, quote, this boy is dead. I've been a judge, jury and executioner of many, many people. Now I want to be my own judge, jury and executioner. I want to tell you everything that happened, end quote. So over the next couple hours, he gave his lawyers a confession going into each victim individually and um, ended up drinking the entire rest of the bottle of whiskey they gave him. And then he fell asleep. Holy shit. He folded easy yeah right he'd only been followed for like nine days i guess i would get to
2: someone when they were actively killing like once every three days but yeah oh my god like yeah i'm speechless i have i i am
1: trying to say something but i can't there's no words
2: for <laughs> what i'm feeling right now
1: <laughs> yeah no i feel you Um, So, at this point, um, his lawyers arranged a psychiatric appointment for him at 9 a.m. with the hopes that he would get committed into a mental hospital because they were like, as lawyers, we can't really, like, say he confessed. Like, we're his defense lawyers, but also we don't want him on the street because, like, he's done so many terrible crimes. Um, And they invited the officers that had been following him around into their office and told them, like, don't let Gacy leave under any circumstances. Like, he's out to lunch. Like, you cannot do that. But they couldn't tell him why. And then when Gacy woke up, um, his lawyers told him that he confessed to killing 30 plus people. And he shook his head and said, quote, well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do, end quote. And he left their office. Um, he drove around to a bunch of different spots and the police finished their formal draft of their second search warrant. Um, due to his erratic events, Um, that day, the surveillance officers thought he was going to commit suicide. So they wanted to bring him into custody to prevent that. Um, so they ended up arresting him for possession and distribution of marijuana because when he stopped at a gas station, he gave a bag of marijuana to the gas station attendant. Um, and then the gas station attendant like gave it to the officers that were following him kind of like, it's illegal for me to have this. I don't want it. Here you go. Um, And so they were just trying to get, like, some sort of control over him. Yeah, Nicole. That's such an odd thing to do, I
0: will say. Like, who's just handing out little baggies of weed?
1: Yeah, he's, like, it had three (laughs) joints in it, according to the TV show, and it was something, like, he's, like, they can't catch me, or I can't have this, like, their police officer's following me. Like, it was something really odd.
0: Just toss it in the, like, in water, throw it out. Why are you well, handing it to another human being? I haven't it's thrown it under yet. the crawl like, space. You've thrown other yeah, crime exactly. under there.
1: Like, possession oh, of marijuana my. is the least of your problems right now. Yeah. Oh, Like, you have gosh. 29 bodies in your basement. Like, I don't know what you want. Um, <laughs> so, either way, at 4.30 p.m. on December 21st, a judge signed the search warrant because of the smell and the photo receipt linking Robert Peace to the home and, like, All of the other evidence they found linking to all the other boys who've gone missing. Um, So police and evidence technicians drove to Gacy's home to find Robert Peace. They found that Gacy had unplugged his sump pump and the crawlspace was flooded with water. So they had to drain the crawlspace before they started digging, um, which was kind of dumb on their part because on Gacy's part, because... Once they drained it, there was like a ton of worms and they were like, what are worms doing in the crawlspace of a house? And so it kind of like led them to the bodies a little bit. Um, So they started digging in, I think, the southwest area of the crawlspace space, found putrefied flesh and a human arm bone within minutes. Um, they moved to a different corner and found what they thought was a knee. And then they moved to another corner and found two leg bones. Um. After Gacy was told that they found human remains in his house, he told officers that he wanted to, quote, clear the air, end quote. Um, So in the early hours of December 22nd, 1978, Gacy confessed that since 1972, he had committed 25 to 30 murders um, of who he claimed were teenage runaways or male prostitutes. We don't know how true that is because um, he lies. And I feel like maybe the unidentified boys were either runaways or male prostitutes because they're unidentified, um, which is really sad, but unfortunately a realistic thing. Um, Gacy thought that he could manipulate the police and not get in as much trouble if he told them what they wanted to hear. Um, he was also able to draw a map to where he buried each person and the few that he put in the river. So he was kind of like word vomiting everything that he had done in the hopes that like his sentence would get reduced. Um, Stupid. Between December 22nd and twenty nine, 29th, 27 bodies were recovered from his property. Uh, they had basically gutted his house searching for the bodies. Um, excavations were postponed until March. And then on March 9th, they found the body of a 28th victim buried in his barbecue pit. And then on March 16th, they found the skeletal remains of another victim under his dining room floor. And so... 26 bodies were found in the crawl space. One was found in the addition, one under the barbecue pit, and one from the garage for a total of 29 bodies in his house. And so on April 10th, 1979, Gacy's house at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue was demolished. Um, thankfully. Good,
0: good. Yeah. That would
1: be some horror museum, true crime. weird. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm really, really glad they demolished it. Um, which they basically had to because they kind of thought there were bodies like in the walls, like they were searching every nook and cranny of the house to like, wow, because there were so many in the basement and like in yeah. the garage and around his yard that they were like, there could be bodies anywhere.
0: Yeah, especially if he's like building his house essentially and adding all of these things on himself, being yeah, exactly. in the contracting world.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um. So. Nine. I think it's about nine. The documentary says nine. Other sources say like seven. Some say eight. So I'm going to say nine um, of his victims have never been identified. Robert Peace's body was found on April 9th, 1979, tangled in roots on the edge of the Des River. Oh, and the nine. The documentary shows that they were all given a funeral and burial burial. the state of Illinois kind of covered that so that they wouldn't be. That's nice. um, Yeah. They were given a proper burial considered how they were killed. Yeah. Very nice. So then on February 6th, 1980, Gracie was brought to trial and charged with 33 murders. He was tried in Cook County, Illinois before judge Louis Garipo and, or Lewis, I'm not sure. And the jury was selected from Rockford, Illinois due to the press coverage in Cook County. And then before his trial, Gacy spent 300 hours with doctors trying to determine if he was mentally competent to stand trial. They found that he was sane and fully in control of his actions. Something was said in the last episode of the documentary where it was said in front of the jury that if they found him um, like not criminally responsible due to insanity, that he would get released to the world kind of thing, or that was their understanding. Like, I don't know. I don't think those were the right words, but it was kind of like he wouldn't end up going to jail. And so they told the jury to disregard that, but that would be very, very difficult to hear, especially or to disregard, especially after hearing all of his cases. So I'm wondering if that's why um, he was sentenced the way he was. And so... Um, He was also interviewed from November 1979 to April 1980 by a member of his legal defense team, and so they have over 60 hours of the conversation recorded, which is what the Netflix documentary was based on. And so, in his trial, the jury deliberated for less than two hours and found him guilty of 33 charges of murder, and he was also found guilty of sexual assault and taking indecent liberties with a child. So... That's why I think the jury kind of went that way is because they were like, "We don't want this man out in the world,
2: honestly, when it comes to how many people he killed and how brutally like i i'm I'm all for getting mental health treatment, but this man should have absolutely no chance of getting out. I completely agree that he just needs mm-hmm. to be put in prison like i like they said when they first arrested him, I don't think there is treating this man,
1: yeah, one hundred percent, I agree, um. So, the next day, March 13th, the jury deliberated for only two hours to decide sentencing. Gacy was sentenced to death for the 12 counts of murder on which the prosecuted wan- prosecution wanted this penalty. Um, and his date of execution was June 2nd, 1980. I don't remember why um, there there is differentiation between like some counts of murder resulted in the death penalty and some didn't. I think it had to do with murders that were in Illinois, but I also... I don't know. I don't remember. Um, so Gacy was transferred to the Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois, where he was on death row for 14 years. Um, he filed so many motions and appeals, all of which were denied, thankfully. Um, he also started to paint in prison, and he ended up selling his paintings for between two hundred dollars to $20,000. And I'm hoping that they got sold after he died, because it would make me so mad if he was still alive and getting that money. Some of those paintings, if I remember correctly, were
2: also at the Museum of Death I went to in New Orleans. And it is Mm -hmm. just, like, again, like, I knew, like, oh, Pogo the Clown. He's a serial killer that dressed like a clown. But I... It feels like i would have felt so more uncomfortable just looking at those knowing mm-hmm. all of this that i know now
1: <laughs> right i really want to go to that death museum it sounds fascinating we should go we should road trip we
2: go to salem massachusetts uh new orleans for the death museum and in los
1: angeles for their death museum <laughs> <laughs> yes i'm down um, so Gacy was moved to the Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill on May 9th to be executed. Before his execution, the chemicals they were going to use mysteriously solidified. Um so spooky. I was listening to ghost episodes that day and I was like, what? Who had a play in that? But they had a whole bunch of new like technicians working that oh, day. They think okay. they just mishandled the chemicals a little bit. Is that like um, a common
0: error that could happen with the chemicals being used or
1: yes. But okay. like I don't I don't know of any other cases in which it happened. Okay. But Interesting. super weird. So yeah. um, they had to try again 10 minutes later. Um, over a thousand people gathered outside the center to watch the execution, some in support, some against, as usual um gacy's last words were quote kiss my ass um very true to character classic and what'd you say sorry i, didn't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I said classic yeah like, 100%. oh my god yeah and so thankfully at twelve fifty eight a.m on may 10th 1994 he was pronounced dead after he was dead. His brain was removed and given to Dr. Helen Morrison, who was a witness for the defense at his trial and had interviewed Gacy and other serial kill- killers trying to isolate common personality traits of violent sociopaths. Um, but the examination of his brain showed no abnormalities, um, so it didn't really help her research at all. And um, that's pretty much it. I have lists of all of the um, boys that he killed, both identified and not identified, that I'm going to put on our website so that you guys can look. The unidentified ones shows where they were buried and the identified ones doesn't, but it does show the age they were and I believe the date they died um, or were killed. So head on over to our website for some gruesome images. I'm also going to see if I can find an image of um, like the crime scene reconstruction of the crawl space and where all the bodies were found because that was crazy to look at. Um, But yeah, that was John Wayne Gacy. I'm sorry that that took an hour and nine minutes and was uh, very traumatizing. But you're welcome. It was informative. I feel
0: like I've learned something that I can warn people to not learn about later in life. Yeah, <laughs>
2: Like your know I mean? our
0: episode and then you're yeah, good. Journey gave yeah, you all the good information. You just need to hear it once. You just need to hear yeah. Journey tell you it once. And then that's all you need to know. <laughs>
1: and that's good to go. Yeah. I was telling my mom, I was like, yeah, we're recording this, like, really gross guy. She's like, yeah, I saw your uh, Instagram story and I really don't want to listen. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, yeah, I know. No. You, I think it's important to listen, though,
0: because you wouldn't understand what went on and what these, like, boys suffered, basically. Well, until exactly. Until you hear it all.
1: Exactly, and I feel like it's important for the victims, and that was something that the documentary did a really good job of. Was like there were family members who went on there and were like, we were kind of upset with how like the news coverage of this trial because it focused so much on Gacy and not on the victims. Yeah. So that's why, like, if the victim was identified, I wanted to say his name because it's important and upsetting that this was how he was killed. Keep his name out there.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for um, really gripping us with that.
1: You're welcome. There were a You're lot
0: welcome. of there were many a <laughs> moments where my jaw was just on the ground. Yeah. Listeners couldn't have seen that, but oh my good lord.
1: This one would have been a good one to videotape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were,
0: This is a side note too, but there was an instance um, where journey, you were saying something like he, he was stupid or something like that. you basically did like mm-hmm. a finger snap, and you are like stupid, like explaining like <laughs> bearing a child under a thing and like getting himself caught.
1: Yeah, incredible literally. that would
0: be the best reaction gif ever
1: <laughs> I'll be um, for you yeah.
0: but okay, well, thank you for all of that and and everything that that was. <laughs> Um, we're going to shift it over to Rebecca now, hopefully give us some insight into maybe why he did this. I don't know if we ever will know why he did this, but can you maybe answer some questions as to whether psychopathy was an option for that?
2: Absolutely. Um, so for starters, super slight spoiler for the end, um, uh, psychopathy did play a bit of a role, <laughs> Um, but just to get started, like, we've all heard the term psycho or psychotic, like saying, oh, that guy is psycho. Um, and it's kind of just thrown around and used by culture, really nonchalant. Um, but no one really, I guess not no one, but it's, it's kind of hard to actually know what being psychopathic genuinely means just because we throw this term around so frequently. So, psychopathy is generally defined as a mental disorder that's largely characterized by a lack of remorse and or empathy, grandiosity, um, impulsivity, deceitfulness, irresponsibility, an increased risk for violent or aggressive behaviors, and a disregard for the well-being or rights of others. So, right off the bat, Gacy seems to hit all those targets. Um However, it is important to note that psychopathy in and of itself is not actually a recognized, like, diagnosable condition, according to the American Psychological Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Super-duper mouthful. The DSM-5 is what this is. (laughs) Um, I keep forgetting
1: that that's the actual name of it. I was like, holy cow. (laughs) I know. It
2: is long. um, Yeah. But – We have discussed it a little bit in previous episodes, but as like a slight refresher, um, the DSM-5 is the standard classification um, tool of mental disorders that's used by mental health professionals in the Western countries. Um, And it contains basically all of the mental health conditions and disorders that one
0: can formally be diagnosed with by a clinician and treated for. One interesting thing with this too is it's always being updated. Not always, but it's is a consistent thing that's being updated. Yeah, I think the last
2: I think DSM-5 was released in 2013. That's the latest and I think before that it was it was like 2000 or like the 90s or something, but it is it is an updated manual. So in the DSM-5, um Psychopathy is not actually listed, uh, but it's basically encompassed by a disorder called antisocial personality disorder, uh, ASPD for short, which, Journey, is what you had said John Wayne Gacy was actually diagnosed with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, according to the DSM-5, I'm just going to quote it directly what ASPD is, Uh, quote, the essential feature of antisocial personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others that begins in childhood or early adolescence and continues into adulthood. Unquote. So basically, one cannot formally be diagnosed with ASPD unless they showed really antisocial behaviors throughout their childhood as well. Um But interestingly, despite part of the diagnostic criteria being that these behaviors have to have been exhibited through childhood, individuals under the age of 18 actually cannot be diagnosed with ASPD. Uh, So instead, they... For individuals under the age of 18, there's actually a disorder called conduct disorder, or CD, which is diagnosed when a child or adolescent shows an ongoing pattern of aggression towards others, as well as commits serious violations of rules and social norms at home, in school, and with peers of their age.
1: Um, I have a question. Yeah. How was he able to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder? Because I don't know that he would have been diagnosed with conduct disorder as a kid.
2: Yeah. So there's, I've kind of learned, like I was reading through the DSM and just the research I was doing. And even though um, they say like need to have had a conduct disorder, the DSM recognizes that a lot of kids probably aren't going to be formally diagnosed with this. And so they kind of just say like, there's enough evidence to support that they could have exhibited a conduct disorder. So if they had like friends and families who could verify or corroborate that like he did this and this and this and this he had no respect for authority um even without a formal diagnosis as a kid you could still be diagnosed with aspd okay yeah so there is four criteria within the dsm-5 that are needed to be diagnosed with aspd and Just because some of them do align with psychopathy, which is why they're so interrelated, Um, I'm just going to read out all of the symptoms that are listed in Criterion A that are commonly associated um, with both of them. But just a quick note that in order to be formally diagnosed with ASPD, um, you only actually need to demonstrate three of the seven items in Part A and then also have B, C, and D. but all of the basically traits you could have for aspd are failure fail, wow well, failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest Two is deceitfulness, as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. Three is impulsivity or failure failure to plan ahead. I have a lot of trouble with the word failure. I apologize. Um, four is irritability and aggressiveness, which is indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. Five is recklessness, disregard for safety, and of self or others six is consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations and finally seven is a lack of remorse as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt mistreated or stolen from another so i think that's really interesting especially after hearing what you had to say about john wayne gacy um i think he has like all seven of these (laughs)
1: um yeah i definitely agree with that there was only one um the consistent irresponsibility because like he had his own business and it was doing very well at the time of arrest Mm -hmm. like it was almost Mm -hmm. a million dollar business by then wow wow. yeah Yeah, so he
2: definitely seems to have been responsible in that sense like he Mm -hmm. he knew how to plan ahead and this is similar to um which is why it's like you don't have to have all seven of these to be considered with ASPD. Because think of Ted Bundy; like he was yeah. also very organized and methodical.
0: Yeah, it's kind of fun that you can pick and choose, though. You don't need all seven; you can shop around a bit. <laughs> yeah, <what laughs> <else> I know. <laughs> Ooh, I want these three.
2: <laughs> these ones seem not as bad as the rest, so that's mine. <laughs> um. But just moving on from uh, those items of ASPD, even though individuals with psychopathy likely all or mostly do present with ASPD, not everyone with ASPD may present with psychotic symptoms or psychopathy uh, because, as we had said multiple times, only three of the seven criterion A are required as part of an ASD or ASPD diagnosis. And some of the symptoms of psychopathy are not even described by this diagnostic tool. So part of the reason that ASPD is not fully encompassing of psychopathy is because it fails to expand the criteria into personality traits. Uh, So instead of focusing on observable behaviors only, um, such as like the impulsivity or lack of financial responsibility hurting others... um, Personality traits that are indicative of psychopathy that are not measured include callousness, remorselessness, and narcissism, which are not inherently observable from an outside view. So, just because psychopathy is not included in the DSM 5 doesn't actually mean that it's not still heavily researched. Um, And it is still largely considered to be its own disorder. I think there's current psychological debates about whether or not it should have its own diagnosis within the next DSM revision. Um, obviously because so much more research on it has come out since the last one, which was 2013. Um, but yeah, there's still, there's a lot of research on psychopathy, but just like most other disorders and diseases, um, it, the vote, the results are still out on whether nature or nurture have a bigger effect on someone's likelihood to get psychopathy. But again, just like most disorders, it is probably a combination of the two that is causing it. So there's an increasing amount of research that actually suggests that while psychopathy, it, it is like a nurture thing, like growing up in John Wayne Gacy's childhood, Probably meant he was much more likely as someone who was already predisposed to psychopathy. He was probably much more likely to be violent because he experienced this violent, terrible past. But just aside from nurture for a second... Uh, There's an increasing amount of research that suggests that psychopathy could actually be a neurodevelopmental disorder that affects the brain's paralimbic system, which contains the brain structures that are involved in um, the functioning of emotion, emotional processing, goal setting, motivation, and self-control. So there's a researcher that I really want to kind of look into more of his work because he sounds like kind of a pioneer in the field of sorts uh his name is dr kent keel and he's currently one of the leading researchers on this topic of kind of using brain imaging and mris uh to see physical differences in psychopaths um brains than the normal person. And he also helped form a company called Mindset, which is a neuroscience and law consulting group that aids lawyers and judges on the intersection of neuroscience and law and the appropriate use of neuroscience in the courtroom, which I feel like if we had this kind of science and education when like, John Wayne Gacy was going through the courts you know, I don't know if I would have wanted it. Um, I don't know if it would have helped John Wayne Gacy. So (laughs) I'm not sure, but I think that research is super cool. And I'm not going to talk a lot more about it just because it's all super complicated brain talk, but psychopathy might look different in the brain than neurotypical. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I think it'd be really interesting if they did have it when Gacy was like on trial, because it yeah, I, get, I see what you're saying about, like, why you don't want it, because then it might have, like, gotten him off on, like, an insane charge or whatever. But it still would have been nice to know definitively, like,
0: yeah. what is going
1: on. And I wonder oh, if they absolutely. still have his brain. Do you think they still have his brain? Like, could, yeah, it I was saying, be- could this have been a
0: post-mortem autopsy? Yeah.
1: i say. Yeah, I'd say they probably
2: do still have his brain. I honestly don't see why they would get rid of that. Yeah. Um, but... I think because it was a functional mRI and looking at like oh. the like the activity in the brain, I don't yeah, think it's something oh. they could do post mortem
1: fair enough makes sense,
2: but yeah i I know I say I don't want this stuff when Casey's alive because I don't want Casey out, but he's everyone deserves a fair trial, and if we could confirm that it was not completely his fault then yeah he deserves better but it he doesn't right now because we didn't know this before <laughs> um yeah but just moving on from that <laughs> so now that we've accepted that even though it's not in the dsm-5 psychopathy is still very much a real thing i wanted to tell you a little bit more about statistics because i love statistics um So in the general American population, studies have generally shown that um, around 1.2% of adult men and 0.3 to 0.7 of adult women exhibit clinically significant levels of psychopathic traits. And this sort of sounds scary, but also significant levels of psychopathic traits um psychopathy is kind of considered a spectrum disorder so like we were saying you could have the bare minimum to be considered it or you could have like like 10 out of 10 of the symptoms so there's a very big level but if you're on the minimum threshold to the highest end that's considered technically psychopathic um and i did have i did have real numbers i have real numbers um so yes, within the United States with 1.2% of adult men and around 0.5% of adult women we'll say, um that would make approximately 3 million adults living in the US uh considered a psychopath, which is interesting. That's and quite a few. Yeah, and so I believe that study came out um when did that one come out i think this that one might have come out in 2020 but it was strictly related to the united states and it was just one study so um obviously all of these are estimates based on like a large sample size so we're kind of generalizing but it's still very interesting um but there was another study that i had looked at that was a meta-analysis of a bunch of studies from all over the world Really, I think it was mostly like America, Canada, UK, like where we're doing the primary research on psychopaths. Um, But this meta-analysis was done in 2021, and it found that of all of the samples they looked at, which I think was approximately like almost 12,000 people in total, about one in 22 people in the world may have significant levels of psychopathic traits. So a few people in every university classroom. <laughs>
1: yeah. Even just every like public school classroom. Yeah.
2: Yeah. True Wild. if you're sitting on
1: a bus with with 25 people, one of them
2: one of them is likely is to have above?
1: Yeah. Wild. I mean like I'm thankful that right now we don't have a lot of like serial killers and stuff. Um the US does have their own issues um but it's crazy that one in 22 people is like technically a psychopath could like they could be you know yeah isn't
0: there some crazy stat too or this could be absolutely nothing about passing at least like one killer in your life something like that like it's bound to happen right
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i've heard that one i would have to look it up to confirm it but and I'm not using this statistic to say all psycho people with psychopathic traits are bad because a lot of research has shown that most people with psychopathic traits are not going to commit these violent crimes. Yeah. But knowing that people with psychopathic traits are two times more likely to be imprisoned on these crimes than the average person, it can still be a little frightening, which does add to the stigmatism of it. So we need to change the conversation, <laughs> but it's just really complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but for a little bit more statistics, um, going back to the U S population for a second, even though it was only about in general, I guess like 2% of the population of the general population. um, being with psychopathic traits, these figures rise when we're looking at the US prison population, in which there's estimated to be around 15 to 25% of inmates who demonstrate the psychopathic characteristics. So it does significantly rise when we're looking at a prison population. And again, it is related to the fact that um, there's a lot more callousness and kind of selfishness in this disorder so it's kind of like i'll do whatever i need to with disregard for others to get ahead my own way even if there's legal consequences um but yeah just to kind of move on from the criminal psychopaths for a minute because again like there are people that live with this that are still decent people just living their lives um, there was a study conducted in 2012 by a Dr. Kevin Dutton, and this aimed to study which professions have the highest and lowest proportions of psychopaths. And so, through an online survey using the Levinson Self Report Psychopathy Scale, um, which is just a tool to measure psychopathy traits, um, Dutton collected data from 5,400 participants in the UK, just from the general population. And what he found was that of the people who responded, so of the 5,400, the highest level of psychopathic traits, um, and just for one, he picked the top 10 and then the top bottom. Like he he wasn't, he didn't just like pick and choose numbers, but the top 10 um, professions with the highest levels of psychopathic traits were CEOs, lawyers, radio or TV personalities, salespeople, surgeons, journalists, priests police officers chefs and civil servants i thought priests was fascinating
1: yeah Um, because everyone everything else like kind of makes sense where they're like they're willing to do what needs to get done to get ahead regardless of everyone else but you think of a priest as someone who like help you
2: almost like the opposite yeah in terms of what they are supposed to stand for exactly yeah um so that was super neat. I, I did like I've I've heard that figure before about oh the most psychopaths in the society are CEOs. I've heard that before and it does kind of make sense. Like they're at the top. They didn't get there despite being good at what they do. Uh, <laughs> maybe they did. I don't know. I can't I can't generalize. But to the opposite effect of that, they f- he had found that the t- 10 professions that scored the lowest on levels of psychopathic traits included social health assistants, so I guess like healthcare workers, um, nurses, therapists, artisans, stylists, charity workers, teachers, creative artists, physicians, and accountants.
1: Um. I would would put accountants in the highest psychopathic traits because I feel like – I would switch that in priests in my mind. That feels like those should be mixed. I don't know why. I
2: know because like when you're looking at these two lists, one of them is very much like like, um, white collar. Yeah, Mm. it's very corporate.
0: I was just thinking that. Corporate. Yeah. And then
2: the other one is very like free spirited, like helping yeah. others. Like, oh, I'm yeah. a teacher. Oh, I'm a painter. Like, these are all very like, I'm not saying teaching is a liberal art, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not white collar corporate kind of world. Exactly. So yeah. That's just, just so fascinating how our, our, traits lead us to these completely different professions
0: well and if you think about
1: the pay gap between them like yeah ceos and lawyers are getting paid way more than teachers and charity workers so i wonder if there's something like does that say anything about the system though that we're in you know Mm -hmm. what i mean
0: so many questions so many questions (laughs) (laughs) and kind of um
2: Going off of what we were saying about like corporate versus not corporate, um, there were further studies and I've also linked them. I didn't mention them all directly in my notes uh, just because there'd be a lot of names thrown at you, but I did link all of these um, studies that I am listing or talking about in our sources. So they are available. And most of them, all of them, but like one did not have a paywall, which was incredible. And really uncommon.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's wow, very that, nice. doesn't,
2: <laughs> right. that doesn't happen a lot. I know. Um, but yeah, there was further study on the relationship between different professions in psychopathy. And generally, it's been found that people that hold like managerial positions or those who work in occupations that are frequently exposed to occupational risks. So that would be like police officers, firefighters that kind of thing. And the managerial positions like CEO lawyers, all that stuff were found to show higher levels of psychopathic traits versus jobs or people that don't have managerial managerial positions and aren't really exposed to that inherent risk in their day-to-day job, which was kind of fascinating because even though those two studies were conducted by like completely different research groups at different times, like they kind of corroborate each other. Um, yeah, but these, of course, once again, are estimates um, based on a large research sample. Um, it's not the entire population, but they are still relatively reliable because we trust these researchers. Um, but how are we actually measuring whether a person is or is not a psychopath? So there are like a few methods. Like I did mention a tool earlier for it um, that was used by Dutton, but one of the most um, validated and reliable is the hair psychopathy checklist revised, or I'm going to call it the PCLR. And this assesses symptoms of psychopathy and rates their psychopathic or antisocial habits. So the PCLR is widely used in legal and clinical settings like prisons and psychiatric hospitals. Um, And it's largely used as an intake tool, usually to assess an individual's risk for violent behavior, kind of so that they can help in, like, building treatment plans and also, like, helping court decisions to determine sentencing and where they need to go and, like, what security prison they need to be in. So the PCLR is a set of 20 items that are essentially the symptoms of psychopathy or the traits that are identifiable and each item is scored between zero and two with zero meaning the item does not at all apply to you. One is it kind of applies like maybe in a few scenarios and two is that this person definitely has this trait. So the highest score possible is 40 and Generally, um, anywhere between like 25 and 30 is kind of like the accepted threshold for being considered a psychopath. Um, like some research uses 25, some research uses 27, like some clinical settings use 30. It's in terms of how people are interpreting it, it's not terribly reliable, but in terms of the um, like the validity of it and how it applies across populations, it's relatively reliable. So I'm going to read off all 20 items of this checklist, just because I know that earlier I listed all the, the diagnostics symptoms of ASPD, but that I said that it was missing a few from psychopathy. Um, so here are the 20 items that the PCLR assesses for. There's uh, glib and superficial charm. Grandiose or exaggeratedly high estimation of self, need for stimulation, pathological lying, cunning and manipulativeness, lack of remorse or guilt, shallow effect uh, or superficial emotional responsiveness, callousness and lack of empathy, parasitic lifestyle, poor behavior controls, sexual promiscuity. Early behavior problems, lack of realistic long term goals, impulsivity, irresponsibility, failure to accept responsibility for one's own actions, many short term marital relationships, juvenile delinquency, revocation of conditional release, and criminal versatility. So I know I kind of just ran through those, um, but I see your faces both suggesting that you heard a lot of them that relate to John Wayne Gacy.
0: Yeah, I was giggling at ones that related to me, and there's shockingly <laughs> a lot. Oh, me too. Like specifically
2: mm-hmm. the one um, need for stimulation. I was like, hey,
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> what got me laughing at first, and then I started counting on my fingers. Uh. Yeah, uh, yeah, see, it's
2: it feels a little alarming. Like when we when we all read those and we're like, oh, oh no, oh, I kind of relate to this. But then (laughs) remember, like twenty five to you need a score of twenty five to thirty to be considered the most minimum psychopath. Yeah, Um, you can get a score of forty out of forty, which means like you scored oh, absolutely, that's me on every single one of (laughs) them.
1: Yeah, wild. Um, I googled what Gacy got on that test, and he got 27 out of 40. Yeah, oh. I was going to mention oh. that. It's weird that like there's a couple like
2: sources suggest like he got anywhere from like 27 to 31, but either mm-hmm. way, that's within like psychopathic range. Yeah, so. yeah.
0: yeah, makes so sense. he it makes what? sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: um. Yeah, but I'm just going to move on from assessments for a little i had a slight blurb about validity and reliability testing but that's just basically saying what i said earlier about how it has been scrutinized heavily and it is found it's obviously more valid and reliable amongst a general male prison population because that is who it was originally designed for. Um, but there is more recent research doing it on like the validity of using it on like female populations or non-prison populations. And they're finding that in general, like it's, it's still a pretty good tool for estimating psychopathic traits. Um, yeah, moving on from that. Um, while individuals with high levels of psychopathy are around two times more likely than someone without to commit violent crimes, having a low to medium level or even high level in some instances of psychopathy, like we were saying, does not guarantee that someone's going to end up committing crime. Um, but of course for This episode, that's not exactly what we're here to talk about. So for those individuals with psychopathy that do end up acting violently or aggressively, how does that affect them? Uh, Studies on the intersection of psychopathy and crime have shown that on average, um, psychopaths are between 20 and 25 times more likely to be imprisoned for crime than non-psychopaths. And they are about four to eight times more likely to violently recidivate, um, which basically means when they're released from prison, um, recidivate means they're going to commit another crime once they're released to be put back into prison. Um, They are four to eight times more likely to violently recidivate when compared to an equal sample of non-psychopaths released from prison, which is
1: frightening which Very also goes so. to show
2: that they were right that they shouldn't have released John Wayne
1: Gacy. Yeah, right. Yeah, and even said like he's he's going to do this again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were on the right track. Yeah, don't release him.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, but when it comes to famous psychopaths in the sense of sensationalized serial killers who everyone assumes must be a psychopath, it gets a little bit trickier to factually discuss this um, just because obviously not every serial killer's PCLR results are going to be published. Um, A lot of the results that we see online are like people doing like in-depth kind of like analyses of, for example, um, Richard Ramirez. They look at everything he did and they like kind of fill it out for him on what they think. Um, So it's a little hard for me personally to rely on what the internet's telling me about whether or not these people are genuinely psychopaths. But as you had said, uh, journey from your search, um, John Wayne Gacy was actually administered the PCLR. And even though like I get mixed results between like 27 and 31 for what he actually scored, this does still put him on the lower, but still puts him on the scale of being a diagnosed. So oh, my goodness, diagnosed psychopath. Um, I keep getting that in the word sociopath mixed up because older research calls them sociopaths. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's fair.
0: I was going to say you're doing a very good job at psychopath because I get like psychopath, like psychopathy and psychopathic all mixed up. If that's even how you pronounce the third.
2: (laughs) It is so funny you say that because that's actually, I was reading just small tangent about psychopathy. (laughs) Um, While I was researching this, um, there's a really great website. It's by a researcher who has spent like their whole life researching psychopathy and how to treat it. I can't remember their name right now, but they run an organization called um, psychopathy is, and it's online and it's basically just, a map it's it's a website full of like information and research and stuff like this about what is and is not psychopathy and trying to break the stigmatism and teaching that there is actually treatment for it. I referenced them a lot during this episode. It was so helpful. Um, But they were saying that one of the reasons that um, psychopathy was not initially put in the DSM five was because um, the term is kind of confusing to people because The word psychology is very similar to psychopathy, but they obviously mean very different things. And then you have psychopathology. Yeah. Yeah, psychopathology, which just is like all mental disorders. Like the psychopathology of a person is what their mental state is. So Mm -hmm. they didn't like psychopathy, one, because it's stigmatizing, but also just because it sounds like so many other words. Like it is so easy to get mixed up. And you're right, like, there's times when I was writing this, and in my brain I'm going, psychopathy. Yeah. Psychology. Yeah. And I'm like, no, none of those are right. It's, yeah. it's it's not a word to me anymore. It is simply not a word. <laughs> um, but just moving on from my little tangent about words that start with psi and end with ology. Um, so John Wayne Gacy, as we had said, is somewhere between, like, 27 and 31 on the scale um but in comparison and apparently this is like widely known um all my sources have the same thing ted bundy reportedly scored one of the highest of any known psychopath um with a 39 out of 40 on the pclr wow he and that was kind of strange to me because i completely understand looking at what he did, um, that that could be the case. And mm-hmm. he is so well put together and like CEOs can be psychopaths. They're put together, but I don't know. Like it just, he, yeah. I think he is like a great, uh, like, I don't know what words I'm trying to use right now, but essentially like when we think of a true psychopath, Ted Bundy is not necessarily the first person that comes to mind just because he was so mat- meticulous but i think that makes the most sense is like because Mm -hmm. he was so callous and seemed so put together and like he did not care Mm -hmm. that people thought this about him and he's kind of like gross to say but like the perfect representation of a psychopath i don't want to say he's perfect in any way but he almost is for psychopaths
1: Yeah. yeah Well, I feel like he's just, like, two-faced enough almost to, like, Mm -hmm. be the perfect psychopath because he does present to this world as this attractive white man who is successful, but then there's also this side of him where it's truly psychopathic. But I also think he is a little bit of a sociopath, too. Like, I don't think, like, psychopathy was his only illness. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: So, uh, just to kind of wrap this episode or wrap this topic up a little bit i just wanted to get into some really small kind of facts about psychopathy um just saying like it's important to remember that even though psychopathy is like it can be considered like a scary disorder um and is it is really heavily stigmatized to the point of like we're scared to be associated with it and because of that there's a lot of people that might want to get help for it but don't want to reach out because they think people are going to see them so differently so if you know someone that is being treated for it or think they need it like don't be scared of them <laughs> um, just in terms of like how common it possibly could be um, like I said earlier it Could actually be considered a spectrum disorder in that there is people who fall low on it and have like the minimum amount of symptoms needed to be considered to the people on the very high end of the spectrum, um, like Ted Bundy. Um, And it is believed that psychopathy is actually twice as common as schizophrenia, anorexia, and bipolar disorder. Wow. Wow which I thought was fascinating. I had no idea, mm-hmm. but it just goes to show that we've like all three of us very likely could know someone that genuinely does have significant levels of psychopathic traits and they're not violent, dangerous people because like everyone else there, there's just something a little different about them. <laughs> um, so there is like a good chance we all score. We might score highly on one or two of the traits that I mentioned earlier. Like we were all laughing about. Um, But obviously depends on the severity of the symptoms as well as the threshold that's being used to diagnose it. And then one more thing, just relating to psychopaths in movies, because I heard this fact like, like almost 10 years ago now. And I was like, that's fascinating. And then I actually read the study today, which I was like, that's cool. Um, or rather, I read multiple articles about the study because it was blocked by a paywall. There was a study conducted in 2014 by uh, two researchers, uh, Leistet and Linkowski, in which they basically got a team of researchers specializing in um, like psychopathic research, um, where they analyzed 400 movies released between 1915 and 2010 to identify which film's most accurately portrayed psychopathic traits. Um, Slight side note, apparently watching all 400 of these and analyzing them took them about three years. Um, Wow.
0: Well, they probably had to also um, double blind test it too or whatever it is. Get multiple people watching the same movie to get multiple answers. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. Like Like, I like to
2: think that All of these researchers would get together for like movie night and like discuss (laughs) what they're doing. But knowing this is a legitimate, like peer reviewed study, they probably didn't just have a fun little movie night for all of these. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, through these 400 movies, they found that 126 characters um, that they thought could actually. Be identified as having like realistic enough traits that they could represent like what psychopathy looks like. Um, and interestingly, only 21 of these 126 characters were women. Um, I also thought that was pretty cool, just not cool, but interesting. Um, just given like women in the general population make up a minority of psychopaths, and it's just neat to see that that is also represented in film.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
2: Probably also a result of the fact that like films represent men as main characters more anyways, but that's like a whole other feminist topic.
1: Um but even on that same topic, like the DS the DSM five was written on the like diagnosing of men. Like absolutely Absolutely. it was was mainly used and targeted for men. So a lot of the diagnoses are a little bit different for women as we're learning. So I'm hoping a DSM six comes out. Yeah, me too. I,
0: yeah, that's,
2: I always forget even the DSM five, you're right, was, was geared towards research of men, just like psychopathy was research was geared towards that. But I'm glad we're finally in an age that we're starting to finally learn about women's brains, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so only 21 of them were women, which similar to the population, um, makes up the minority. And then further, which I always remembered, um, was that of all of the characters, they determined accurately represented psychopathic traits. The most accurate was um, the main character who's played by Javier Bardem in the movie No Country for Old Men. So if you want to see what a real... like pretty close to real, uh, high level psychopath looks like. Um, I'd highly recommend you go and give the movie no country for old men a watch. I am just going to give a little precursor to that, that I didn't get through the movie simply because it was really boring to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, which is, which really, really surprised me because I specifically remember watching it because I heard this fact and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to I want see that. Like, I'm fascinated in psychology. I, and, yeah, it's like a three-hour movie, and I wasn't completely sure what was happening. And I do agree that that man, like, I wouldn't want to fuck with that man, sorry <laughs> for the language. But, yeah, it, be prepared for a three-hour movie if, if you want to see what a psychopath
0: looks like. Fair enough. I,
1: and unfortunately,
0: when- the... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nicole. I was going to say, I went to Google No Country for Old Men, whatever. And as soon as I wrote No Country, it filled in For Old Men Psychopath. And I think it's what it's known for.
1: (laughs) Yep. He was a really good actor because he does look like... He's such a good actor, but he scares the living daylights out of me. Right?
2: Mm -hmm. I think
0: it's the haircut for me that's doing it. i think that would do it for anyone like berries and cream with the dark eyes though just staring into your soul
2: (laughs) yeah there's one scene in particular i don't remember who pointed it out like i think we might have watched it in a psychology class i can't remember um i'll send it to you guys and then i don't know maybe i'll put it in like our our sources like list i'll say like this chunk of movie Uh, is what i'm talking about um but there's one scene in particular that i remember someone saying like this is the one that you can tell he's a psychopath and it's just him like staring down a gas station attendant asking like let's flip a coin and the guy's like well what do i win if 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 i get tails and he said you win your life back and it's he's basically like holding the uh, i don't want to spoil it and i'm also butchering it because i'm the absolute (laughs) worst at retelling stories um But I'll send you guys the link and I will put the link in our sources so that I don't butcher it and ruin it for whoever (laughs) thinks it might actually be interesting. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but that's all I had on psychopathy. I didn't know where to start and I didn't know where to end with this topic because there's so much research on so many different aspects of it. Um, But I hope that kind of gave like a, a beginner's intro to... The vast topic of psychopathy, <laughs> no,
0: I, no
1: think I think it
2: think
0: really it was, did, yeah, I think it was really well done, like, and it's interesting too, to like see the different perspectives too, of how psychopathy is portrayed. like how are you talking about like in media and like the dis the disparity between women and men that that show symptoms, that kind of thing? I feel like I learned a lot today. I will say that <laughs> me too. I.
2: I think I learned more from you, Journey, than I would have learned to the John Wayne Gacy tapes because I'm not very good at listening to TV and I was almost too scared to watch that. And you leave out their so early much childhood, childhood as
0: well.
1: <laughs> yeah, they leave out so much information.
0: And I feel like that's so like crucial to contextualizing everything that happened though. hmm Like it Absolutely. is not to say that it excuses his what he did in any way whatsoever, but like you get you just get to see a bigger picture of the shit that happened and why it's so horrific. Like you can understand. Exactly. You can yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I think really slight tangent. Like I think that goes similar. By the way, I think we should do an episode on Eileen Warnos, but I think it's the same thing. Like people that don't know how terrible Eileen Warnos' childhood was see mm-hmm. her as a lot more brutal and evil than what I genuinely think she actually was. And it's yeah. It's just fascinating how many Um, like serial killers, we would look at a little bit differently if if we actually bothered to go into their childhoods.
1: Yeah. Well, I was telling my grandma that I was researching John Wayne Gacy and telling her like he's just such a terrible man, and she's like, "What was his childhood like? Like he must have had like a horrific childhood." I was like, "Yes, you are one hundred percent right. Like it Mm -hmm. was terrible."
0: Yeah. That is crazy. Okay. Well, thank you both for educating me on so many things and leaving me viscerally disgusted yet intrigued. So thank you. I hope our audience members are feeling similar things, I guess. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. You can feel whatever you want to (laughs) feel. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) Um, Our next episode is the, we're going to cover the dating game killer and kind of discuss forensic sketch artists, the art behind that, what that entails. Um, I know this has been a little bit long of an episode, so my did-you-know I'll do really quick and I'll leave you hanging. Did you know that in 1981, there was an archaeology dig that uncovered the this coffin? It was a lead-lined coffin of a medieval man and he was preserved so well to the fact that he looked like he had died Weeks ago, and this individual died somewhere in between the 1250s to 1500s. Wow! Oh my god, was he a vampire? <gasps> no, like a confirmed vampire. Oh
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> but why I'll do that you insane.
0: If you have any questions, sorry, you'll have to look it up, and I will post a forensic Friday about it.
1: Boo! I want to know why <laughs> they chose <just>
0: lead. <laughs> His name is the Saint Bees Man. I will say that. It was just it it's have so cool. To, does
1: it it's have anything the location. location. Do with these? Oh, okay,
0: okay. No, it's just the location. I'm um, so excited for
2: our Forensic Friday. I'm not even going to look it up. I'm just going to wait for the post. Okay.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, they found um, that his last meal was oats and raisins. And during the autopsy, they found liquid blood in his lung, in his chest cavity.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. How is he not yes. a vampire if he died in the 1250s and he's, like, perfectly preserved? Uh, I don't
0: know. I want to believe everything that I've seen on this, like, seems very genuine. And I'm going to believe that is genuine. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, what if this is, like, an archaeology hoax? Yeah, well, I don't think so. I don't think okay. so. I will join you in that delusion. Yeah. But this is the St. Bees man. Um, But anyways, thank you to our listeners for sticking in this far. And... And learning all of these things with us. Um, If you want to find out more, we've kind of alluded to it already, but you can find us on our website at whattheforensics.ca. This is your one-stop shop for everything forensics with us and, you know, our sources, source images. We do recommendations. Um, You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at whattheforensics. Our Twitter, our Twix, our X, whatever it's called (laughs) nowadays, Um, You can find us there at WTForensicsPC, and give us a shout at whattheforensics at gmail.com if you love to use email. Some people love email, and we're here for it. Um, Make sure to give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We do love to read them. It does mean a lot to us, and it kind of helps us out in the world of podcasting. And this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you learned a lot. We hope you enjoyed it to the best that you could, given the circumstances. I know I did. And we will see you next time. Bye! Bye.
1: (laughs) Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.